0: Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge. By word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers, a black female judge of the South Euclid, Ohio Municipal Court. Judge Byers first became a judge in 2012 She's in her second term. She also is a fellow at the National Judicial College and a former assistant prosecutor in Cleveland. Today we talk about race and racism. Judge Byers shares the facts of the overt and covert racism she has suffered while being a judge in her city. Judge, in the past, many of us thought that racism was really something just owned by the unenlightened or the white supremacists. But now we find that's really not true and that racism is really permeating deeply into almost all white culture. So where do we go from here? What should our national conversation be about in order to make progress?
1: Time I'm so encouraged that we're having real, transparent, painful, but necessary conversations about race and racism, and um, insofar as we're beginning the conversations about them, I still believe that there is yet a long way to go because there's so much about the overarching topic of race racism, how it has permeated just about every facet of society um, that we are not yet ready to even acknowledge, that still needs to be addressed. I think that um, what you've said is so true. We believe for so long that this was an area, a topic that was reserved for the unenlightened, um, those who were perhaps stuck in days gone by and that for so many who had achieved or had arrived, that that was something that just didn't happen in those circles. But the fact of the matter is is that even as an elected official, I have and still do experience pervasive, consistent racism, on a regular basis in my capacity as an elected judge. And it's not escapable for me no more than it's escapable for black and brown individuals who are just looking to make it from one 24 hours to the next. And yes, these are not just important conversations to have, but these are hurdles that have to be bounded if we are truly, truly to get past just the singing of we shall overcome, but to actually overcome. We're never going to get there if we don't actually do something about what's happening. Because what has happened and what is happening inside the Black experience is real. And it doesn't go away because we wish it away. It doesn't go away because we just want our white counterparts to not just be racist, but they have to be anti-racism. They actually have to be engaged in being against racism. And unless and until that happens, then no, we stay stuck in neutral
0: we seem to have deluded ourselves into thinking that we understand about racism and that the bulk of it was behind us but that's just not the case i mean certainly not for you it's daily in your face
1: indeed um and so let me start from um a historical perspective and bring it to current day and 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 so And again, what is daily in my face is something that I think what white Americans may not even understand or appreciate as covert racism, but certainly what Blacks experience regularly. And we know that for our white counterparts, they would never have these experiences. This would likely never be with their daily experiences. So when we, as Blacks, talk amongst ourselves, we already know that if we did not look the way that we did, that this would never happen to them. So it's 2012. I am the first Black woman elected to my office in South Euclid. My city has never elected an African-American to my office, and I am Not only am I proud, but my community is proud. Why? Because we have a community that's rich with diversity. And so this is a community that has seen its way to narrowly, but nonetheless, it does vote its first African American um, female and first African American into the office of a judge. And I happen to remember this just recently that I was um, reflecting on um, an audio. Tape, and it was within the first six months, the first six months of being in office, there had become great consternation because I had determined that there was um, a practice, a pattern in practice that had been taking place in the city over parking tickets. Um, And that actually goes to the issue of over policing um, certain communities, and particularly as it relates to. Black and brown people who tend to bear the brunt of this over policing, but that's a whole nother issue. But I determined that the manner in which the city had been applying their parking ticket regulations was unconstitutional and that they needed to change it because it violated the due process clause. And I realized I was new to the position, but I wasn't new to being an attorney. In fact, I'd been a prosecutor for nearly a decade and prior to that I served on Capitol Hill and so I feel pretty comfortable in my skill set notwithstanding the chief of Police who had been the chief of police and was a is a white male um, had been there for a while and I will never forget sitting in a meeting where the predominantly white city council was in this meeting the chief of police who's white sat at the head of the table, And he was upset about the declaration that I had made about this unconstitutional application of the parking tickets. The law director, who was also white, was in this meeting. And as the chief of police begins his statement to the council, he says to them, in his first words to them, as he pulls his glasses off and he wipes his glasses, he tells them, well, you know... I'm not here to lynch the judge. And then he goes on to explain what his position is. As if I, as the black woman in the room, should find some comfort in the fact that this white man, who is the head of the police department, a predominantly white police department, by the way, in front of the predominantly white city council with the white law director, sitting there. I should be comforted by at least knowing that he's not there to lynch me.
0: That must have sent chills up your spine.
1: I was I was stunned. I was appalled. And I can tell you, even in that moment, I couldn't even find the words. I remembered clutching the arms of the chair And I just could not even find the words. But then I remembered that a couple things. First of all, if the chief of police could let words like that tumble out of his mouth and he could say that to the judge, he sets the tone in the police department. And so if that's how the chief speaks to the judge, then I could only imagine how the rank and file treats the random black person on the street. If the chief of police talks to the judge in front of the predominantly white city council with the white law director sitting there, then that's cultural in the whole city because that's top down. If your chief feel comfortable making a lynching reference to your black judge, then that's because there is a level of comfort in this community that says that's okay. Because no one said a word to him. The law director didn't say anything. The mayor, who is the chief's boss, no one said anything. And so that's because those are racist tendencies. And so if that's okay for the chief, then that's okay for the law director. It's okay for council. It's okay for the mayor. And so these are, and so what that is is that was no more than setting the stage for how I would be treated. And trust me, that is how I have been treated the entire time I have been in office.
0: Do you think the chief chose his words to give you a warning or were they a slip of the tongue or was it just callous disregard of the import of the phrase he spoke from a white man to a black woman?
1: And so here's what I can tell you. As a prosecutor, we always learn this thing about motive is that we can never look into the minds of another to tell you what they are thinking. All we can tell you is that based on their actions, how they have responded. So I can't tell you that I could flip open that chief's head and tell you what his motive is. What I can tell you is that from that day to this one, he's never thought twice about what the connotation of a lynching reference from a white man to a black woman ever meant. And he's never thought twice about it. Never. I'll tell you even from there. So interestingly enough, and and so this is, this is how the community works. So not only does it move from that reference, interestingly it happens that it's shortly thereafter, there's a referendum that's placed on the ballot, whereas before the law director, who's also a white male, um, was originally appointed by the mayor and um, council. usually had no authority to confirm the law director, but there was a referendum placed on the ballot that then put the power of council to at least confirm the law director, even after the mayor appointed. The law director apparently became angry at that referendum because I suppose, I could only suppose that he would prefer for the power to vest only with the mayor. It's not my business and I don't care. But what I did learn is shortly after that, after the matter went on to the ballot, the law director made it clear to tell me that he inspected the petitions that placed that referendum on the ballot. And upon inspection, he learned that one of the petitioners, one of the circulators of the petitions had the surname of Williams. And because one of the circulators' surname was Williams, he had naturally deduced that I was involved in this effort because one of the circulators' last names was Williams. And since my maiden name is Williams, we must be related. To wit, I can only respond that, well, you clearly know that Williams is one of the most common surnames in the United States of America. But if that is your deduction, then you do know that Brian Williams on NBC is a white man. So clearly that must be my cousin.
0: And how did he respond to that?
1: He had no response because that is, again, covert racism for which there is no connectivity sometimes. There is no way in the free world you can tell me that because someone who circulates a petition happens to have a same or even similar surname to my maiden name, I must be involved because their last name is Williams.
0: Starting from the police chief's comment in 2012 to the law director's comments, you you basically have stated that since 2012, you've faced a series of racist acts or comments regarding you and and your position, uh, a position that was given to you by the public. Uh, In Ohio, all judges are elected. Each is to serve a six-year term. So your position was given to you by the electorate, but still subject to racism? That being the case, how were you diminished? Have you been the subject to racism from the beginning?
1: And one would think that, Tom, these are the things that could stop you from doing your job. In fact, I recalled um, one person saying, I'm amazed that you've got anything accomplished with everything that you've gone through. And this has been the Black experience always, is the idea that we have always had to suppress the racist experiences that we've had. Never in um, my life. In fact, I've, I've met so many residents in my community who said, you know, I've lived here for decades and Prior to you being elected, I didn't even know who the judge was before you. But ever since you've been elected, you know I've heard a lot about you, but largely just because you seem to never be able to do anything right until you <laughs> until you you send out a newsletter or you tell us what you're up to. And And that unfortunately has been the case. I've been able to do nothing right in the eyes of every other branch of government. You know, I'll even tell you something that is an absolute affront to even the position itself. You know, our our court shares our um, our courtroom as council chambers, and so my jury room also doubles as the council's hearing room. And this was probably about six or eight months ago, and it happens. I walked into my jury room one day, and this is again just and. What some may see is just disrespect. Again, this is how it turns into covert racism. And this is by because I know if my predecessor, who was a white woman, had been there, these are the things that never would have happened and did not happen as long as they were there. I walked into my jury room, the room that as judges we tell jurors, we commit to them, they have the ability to be there, they can deliberate. In, um, in secret, I've used it for my mental health team meetings and the like. And I happened to notice in the corner ceiling, just on a random day in the corner ceiling, there's an object protruding from the ceiling. Had no idea what it was, so I caught my bailiff in and I said, Hey, do you know what that is and, and why that's there? He said, Judge, I don't know, but I'll check it out. I happened to learn that without asking me, without consulting me, without notifying me, without bringing me in for a conversation, the city and the police chief had decided that they would come into my jury room, the court's jury room, and they would cut a hole in the ceiling and drop cameras into the jury room. So they dropped cameras into the jury room under the auspices of well from time to time this is council's committee room and sometimes meetings get a little you know heated and they we need to be able to see in here are you suggesting that you should do this without inviting me the judge into a conversation about how this intrudes on The deliberation of juries, because you do understand that more than this room is ever used for a council committee meeting room. It is used as a jury room that this room is also used when I hold my mental health team meetings and the information that is exchanged in here is HIPAA protected. How dare you? They don't see anything wrong with that. And that is born out of racist disrespect. Things that would never, ever happen to anyone else. I only had to learn about it when I walked in and saw an object protruding from the ceiling.
0: It seems from all the instances you've described that there's an effort to minimize you and your position, and that the position of judge has been treated differently than when a white person occupied that judgeship.
1: And had been. If you ever listened to even the budget hearings, you would hear the, counsel, the only remaining black female on council indicate repeatedly, we never treated, and she referred to my predecessor, we never treated her like this. We never talked to her like this. We never responded to her like this. To wit, there was no response. Because I, I do believe that there is grand truth to that. When I tell you, Tom, that in my experience, I've now been twice elected to this position. And in the time that I've been elected to this position, I have actually had to endure efforts from the mayor and city council working to literally eliminate the court in total, in total, while I have been there because I refuse to use the court as a piggy bank for them. Refuse. And because I refuse, I have never seen more drastic efforts to literally eliminate an entire branch of government. And in the efforts, and when that has not worked, there have been all out efforts to berate and malign me personally. It can be nothing but racism. And when I have tried to assign it to everything else, I can find no, and I worked hard to not get to this point. There is no other explanation. And I know racism when I see it.
0: This racism, as you've described it, what message is it sending from white culture? Is it that white, the white power structure is more powerful than you and will cut you out, minimize you? Or is it that we're a superior race if you would only follow our lead and in instructions, you'd be okay. Help me get my head around this whole absurdity.
1: I think it is is multifaceted. I think that it is definitely fear of shared power. I definitely think it is the idea of who do you think you are? You're not good enough to be on our level. We have no interest in sh-
0: they're saying you uppity black woman, you.
1: Yes, yes, indeed, and 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 I can give even more examples of that. But absolutely, who you know, who do you think you are? Um, yeah, you know, we don't want anyone here that we can't control. And since we did not handpick you, that means we cannot control you. So you do not have a right to be here. And so the only people that are black that are here are the ones we can control. It reminds me of the days of slavery where the only black people that curried favor were the the black people that the white slave owners controlled. And that is still the mindset. That is yet the mindset now. And those blacks that were not controlled wholesale were the ones that whites sought to diminish. They sought to kill and destroy. And it is no different now. Absolutely no different now. Take, for example, um, there are, in a city as rich with diversity as mine, there are seven members of council. And in a city that breaks at almost 50% minority out of seven members of council, there are two African-Americans on city council. I would suspect that for a city that found its way to elect its first Black judge, I would think that it could find its way to diversify its own city council more than two out of seven. Notwithstanding. Um, I'll also say that I clearly wasn't the um, power structure's choice for judge. Why? Because it's a powerful position and the power structure would like to continue to have control over the judicial branch. If not being able to control that or control the person there means, um, you know, what it means, then, yeah, either you get rid of the person or you get rid of the seat. And so that's what the power struggle has been. And so (laughs) what's happened recently, and and this intertwines because not only, and, and it does turn into, you know, you uppity in person. So two years ago or a year and a half ago, I had the honor of being appointed As the only judicial fellow for the National Judicial College, and you may be familiar with this because we have the Ohio Judicial College and the Ohio Judicial College teaches Ohio judges. The National Judicial College teaches judges all over the country. I am so honored to have the ability to teach my colleagues all over the country and even, you know, all over um, all over the world when invited.
0: Let me jump in here. The, the National Judicial College, which is located at the University of Nevada, Reno, is the elite educational entity for judges from around the globe. It is highly prestigious.
1: I am honored. And to represent the state of Ohio in this capacity and to still be able to represent the state of Ohio um, in this capacity is a deep honor. I still teach my colleagues all over. um, And, you know, I'm looking now. I have, I've been asked to teach um, webcasts um, through September. And I was just asked to teach actually one on human trafficking in December. um, Another one, actually, I'll be... uh, Possibly in Reno in December again, and, and access to justice. Actually, I'll be teaching access to justice Martin Luther King weekend in January. So it's, it's pretty apropos that we'll be talking about access to justice um, Martin Luther King weekend.
0: So you have this elite position, but it doesn't Indeed. make any difference to the boys back home.
1: It not only does it not only does it not make any difference. Here's what's interesting about it. Um, I was invited to um, join my colleagues as part of the faculty actually in Bordeaux, France, when the president of the college, Venice Aldana, invited me and others to to come to Bordeaux, which initially I was going to be teaching. And then the EU came in, it changed the program. I actually earned credits while being there, but was invited to Bordeaux. I actually earned a scholarship to um, attend there. And as a former judge, you might understand this. We have in our court um, special projects funds where statutorily, the statutory requirement or part of the purpose of that fund is to pay for the education of judges. And we still have requirements to earn credits um, and to maintain our licenses as well. And so I went to Bordeaux, not only on scholarship, but also to earn credits and then the last portion, all the travel was paid for myself. Well, you would have thought that I had gone on a junket and a vacation with my family and had my, you know, feet up, and I was somewhere just sunbathing. Because when I returned, there were reporters that had been dispatched to my home. And when I say to my home, it was perhaps the most unsettling thing, again, because I am a former prosecutor who has had the experience of prosecuting some very nefarious individuals, some of which may be incarcerated, others may not. So to have someone dispatched to my home with a camera wherein my home address could have been disclosed, endangering potentially my family. My neighbors and others is not only um, reckless and dangerous; it is absolutely unreasonable. Um, but but it didn't stop at that because of course they sent them to my court, and it was all over. You know, how dare you go to France? You know, who, who do you think you are? You're going to France, and, and you're you're spending the city's money going to France. There was no effort to discern the fact that that is exactly what a special projects fund is there for because who does she think she is going to France? And had I been any one of my white colleagues going to France as a judicial fellow, as faculty, I would have gotten a ticker tape parade. I would, have, I would have gotten, I would have made the front page of the paper. Oh, yeah. I would have been have on been front every page news, news. Station. Oh, yeah, I got the paper. I was on the news, in the newspaper, but I was in the newspaper as being nefarious. I was a spendthrift. I was being reckless. I was irresponsible. I was mismanaging. I was incompetent. I was every negative connotation one could think of. And when I had the nerve to call the editorial board of the newspaper to tell them when I had had enough of them maligning me for all of the wrong reasons, because they had completely, completely taken the storyline of the city, because the city had merely fed them what they wanted to hear, because, of course, these are all of the white elected officials deciding how they would design a story to malign the black elected official that they now have decided to hate. I was told by the head of the editorial board, she invited me to make an appointment to come down to the newspaper and, quote, explain myself. I can come down and explain myself to them. Explain myself. To wit, I wanted to know how many of my white colleagues had been invited down to explain themselves, especially when they had engaged in far more challenging behavior such as duct taping the mouths of black defendants or I don't know, threatening to bust a cap in their hind parts when they became angered at sentencing or ordering them to not have any more children out of wedlock. They hadn't been invited to come down and explain themselves as far as I knew, but being an educated black woman was now somehow an albatross or a cross to bear? I wouldn't be explaining myself, but I didn't know that being an educated black woman and refusing to be a dumb judge was now somehow th- that was an albatross. I didn't realize it was a
0: liability. You shared with me a few days ago a story from one of your black woman judicial colleagues. It it showed that racism you described is not just against you, but is pervasive in the judicial system. Uh, Could you share that story because I think it's spot on?
1: Yes, I we I am I'm not alone. There are many of us that are similarly situated. We, um, I, I have an, another colleague. We, I, we call ourselves um, first. We are we're first judges. We're first black judges, and you know we we agree that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how high we go, no matter what we achieve, no matter what we attain to some, maybe not all, but to some, we will never be more than that, those two last words that Ahmad Avery heard as he lay dying in the middle of the street. After he was shot by the McMichael, they called him an effing end. That's all we'll ever be to some people.
0: We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream, and in every medium and by all means, it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next, educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus, and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further, not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists to make it loud to make it clear make it known learn more at ohio.edu/scripps college We're talking about a position of power a, an elected position a position of respect A position that has been elevated throughout history, that of a judge, a judicial officer, and in Ohio, an elected judicial officer. It sounds like you can't get respect at all just because of your pigmentation. I would agree. I mean, that, that seems absurd. But, but it's real.
1: But I also think it happens in ways that, again, some people just don't maybe understand or appreciate because it's so much a part of the daily experience of of black people. I'll tell you an experience that I just recently had, which was um, more covert. So as you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and um, a lot of courts are operating differently than they had ever operated before. My court certainly is. And we've moved our dockets to a virtual platform because we like to keep everyone safe and healthy, but we also want to keep at least the digital doors open. And so shortly after the governor issued his um, order on March 17th, we responded. Our court responded by um, moving to a digital platform starting March 20th. So I think it was a very sh- quick shift, um, and probably faster than most other courts. I would have hoped that again, this is the kind of response we could have, you know, gotten. You know, maybe some some good reflection from from the media for, but none. But that's, that's fine because we don't do it for the purpose of having the, the press respond to that. We do it because this is our job and this is what we're supposed to do. Notwithstanding the day before on the 19th, I sent a memo to the entire um, city council, the mayor, the chief of police, and, and everyone else indicating this is how the court would operate This is what we would do. And if you needed to reach us here, all of the ways that you can reach us, I mean, I'll be issuing a very thorough administrative order, alerting the public also how they could reach the court and how they could schedule hearings as well, because we want the the public to have access. And as you may know, courts have been doing everything they can to to push the word out. Everything. And we posted it on our doors, but we also put it out on our website, social media platforms Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Uh, Twitter, um, our local bar association and the Supreme Court has been collecting like a clearinghouse of of administrative orders as well. So if you're looking to find out how your court is handling business, you can also go to the Ohio Supreme Court's website. Shameless plug, but there it is. Um, And so this is probably about three weeks or so ago. And after having sent this email over two months ago, I get an email from um, the administrative offices at the Ohio Supreme Court. And it didn't say much, but it just said court operations on the subject line. And so it's so a Friday afternoon and I immediately respond because I want to be responsive. And it was right after the governor changed the stay at home order. And so I didn't know if the Supreme Court was possibly trying to maybe figure out how some courts are responding. So I quickly answer. but long story short, I quickly learned From um, our own Supreme Court that they were reaching out to me because one of our one of our council members, who's a white council member, had contacted the Ohio Supreme Court to report and complain that um, the South Euclid Municipal Court had been closed and I was doing nothing since March 17, which is, by the way, beyond untrue because by then, it was May going into June, not only had I been holding regular virtual dockets, I'd actually been hosting observers and also um, hosting other judges so that their court staff could see how we hold our virtual dockets so that when they began to hold theirs, they could see how it's done, maybe decide how they wanted to do theirs. If they wanted to adopt some measures, they could. If they didn't, that's fine. I'm not offended. So in a sense, I guess I'm, you know, collecting witnesses not knowing, uh, unbeknownst to me. At the same time, one of my colleagues in a neighboring city who's a white male um, is genuinely holding no dockets at all. Um, And in fact, it indicated that, no, just going to do jails and, you know, maybe some emergency hearings here and there. But no, we're not holding any dockets. In fact, you know, we're just going to wait for the dust to settle or for the smoke to clear. Um, so that's literally my neighbor. We share a border. My neighbor, white male, next door. Me, virtual dockets, regularly uh, hosting observers, helping to train others. That's me. But my white male councilman calls the Supreme Court to report that I'm doing nothing. And so I get an a email asking Me to respond to my white male councilman's allegation that I'm doing nothing. Now, what I say to that is I'm fine with responding by handing over my latest court order. But I had to pause also to say, you know, my, first of all, councilman, the councilman received my memo back in March, so he knew full well that that wasn't true. Also, my court order was posted on the courthouse doors, so you could see that clearly, and that wasn't true. But before I'd gotten an email from Columbus, my court's website, where the court order is also posted, is accessible from Columbus. My court's Facebook page is accessible from Columbus. Twitter is accessible from Columbus, as is Instagram. All of that is accessible from Columbus. (laughs) Right. But instead of that being the case. And I suppose maybe I shouldn't be offended, but I am because as the and, and this is what I mean when I say this is covert racism that maybe to others doesn't look like it and doesn't feel like it. But it absolutely feels like it to me, because as the black judge, what happens is I get called to respond to and give an account for my white councilman's allegation, which is easily refuted by merely pulling up my court's website before you ever even send an email to me, before you ever even ask me to refute what he alleges. Because all you have to do is look at, my court's website, the local bar association's website, my court's Facebook page, my court's Twitter feed, my court's Instagram, any one of those would have given you the same exact information that I would have sent you when you called and asked me and I merely sent you the same court order that was already posted. But instead, the black judge has to now defend herself against the white councilman when my white neighbor judge who is literally openly doing whatever he decides to do is perfectly fine because here's what I will promise you. He, he'll be determined to be cautious because not doing anything during this time for him, he's just cautious. Were that me, I would be lazy. And a
0: thief. So you've been basically all the tropes. I mean, uh, uppity, uh, lazy, uh, uh, trying to get something for nothing by going to uh, Bordeaux, France. It, it, does it ever end? I mean, it just seems like it's one thing after another after another. I mean, as, as a human being, that has to wear on you, and how does that affect you after all of this time, all the schooling you've gone through, all of the things that you've gone through to get where you are?
1: Indeed, it's a lot. It is a lot. And it takes a lot of commitment to public service. And and I'll tell you, and I've said this in, in my colleagues and I say this, that It's no easy thing being committed to public service. I choose to be a public servant. I am absolutely committed to helping my people because, and I'm committed to helping all people because I know the need is there. But it is a daily fight to often just show up in the building almost literally with boxing gloves and to do this fight regularly because that's exactly what it is. You're often combating all of this and it's needless. And the people that, and I will tell you, I've taken to calling my community South Euclid, Mississippi. Wow. Because it is just that insidious. The again, this is a city that is rich with diversity, rich with diversity. But when I tell you about the comments of the police chief and the law director, this is a community in my courtroom. More than 90 percent of the defendants that are there look just like me. But they have a 100 percent chance of being prosecuted by a white male. One hundred percent. Every time a special prosecutor is required, in the time that I've been there, there's been a 100% record of being prosecuted by a white male special prosecutor. This is in a community, and that's whether it's a resident of the community or not. Every prosecutor has been a white Male. There is no, there has been no appreciation for the value of diversity. Up until a few years ago, the mayor's cabinet meetings might as well had have been a KKK meeting because there was no diversity among the directorial ranks. Only recently has a director been hired that is a person of color. And even that came after consistent pressure to hire somebody that is from a diverse background in a position for a director. It should never be like that. In a community that is so rich with diversity, in a community that could see its way clear to elect its first Black judge, you cannot convince me that there is not more talent here. And you also can't convince me that the only people that don't know how to follow the rules are the people that look like me.
0: G- Judge, it, it's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, stemmed from an incident, uh, a murder uh, on, on the street of, of George Floyd. What we're hearing from you today is how you, in an elevated position of respect and authority, are treated with overt and covert racism. If that's the case with you, what's it like on the street? I mean, does that go through your mind constantly?
1: What I will tell you is that is precisely the point I mean when I reference the lynching reference experience with the chief of police. That is exactly what I mean. When I say, if your chief of police, the head of law enforcement in your city does not flinch or think twice about making a lynching reference to the black judge, and they are responsible for setting the tone in that police department, they are responsible for that. Then that means the rank and file take their cues from the chief. It's just like a parent. Parents set the tone in their homes. And so, Children don't aren't born racist, they learn it. That is what happens in a home. That is that comes from constant exposure. That comes from being told it's okay to think that way about people and to treat people that way. Well, when you come into a work environment and if it's okay to drop those kinds of names and those kinds of words and say those kinds of things about certain groups of folks, then guess what? We've just created a place of comfort and a breeding ground for that type of attitude. And so there is no place to check and balance it. No, what we're doing is we're watering the ground for it to fester and for it to grow. And so... Indeed, if your chief will say this, then your rank and file will act on it.
0: I'm, I'm searching for, for words. Um, your white colleagues, have they stood up at all? for you or against this kind of thing or are they complicit by silence I, I, I'm really interested in the complicity by silence uh, concept
1: so, I'll say um, the answer is no they have they haven't um outwardly stood up no and i think part of it is you know by and large my white colleagues enjoy um you know, certain good relationships with you know press outlets and for them standing up for somebody in situations like this, especially, you know, for a colleague, is, well, why would I do that openly? Now, here's what I will say. Have I ever, you know, gotten a text message or, you know, words of encouragement? Absolutely. But is it open at, no, no, no. Um, But
0: it seems to get over this. We have to have these conversations openly. Just, uh, Just a quick text isn't going to do it.
1: I don't disagree. And so what what you just said reminds me of my favorite quote from the poet Dante. And you may be familiar with this, but that, that, um, that quote says, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in times of great moral crisis choose neutrality. And that's my favorite quote from the poet Dante. And if there is ever a time of great moral crisis, I think we have to do more than just say, oh, this is bad. or Oh, this is whatever. What I think, at least from my standpoint, as it relates to my white colleagues, is they don't see this as a pattern of racism. You know, I've even had some that are like, oh, my gosh, there's just, you know, they just don't get along out there. They just can't get along. This isn't about getting along. You don't understand. This is not about getting along. I had the president of my city council who did not understand how the process of the court's unclaimed funds process worked. So he didn't understand that these are monies that are across several accounts and you have to give people a chance to come collect their money and then they're given to cities and then they have to give people a chance to collect their monies before, after five years, they can put them in their general fund. And this councilman had the nerve to go to the newspaper and channel his inner Cuba Gooding Jr. and (laughs) declare that essentially I had stolen the money almost personally because I, quote, needed to show them the money. I hadn't, I, as if I were the clerk of courts keeping the money personally, but because it hadn't been turned over, I needed to show them the money. And all the time my predecessor had been there, when I could point to years when the fund hadn't even been reconciled properly, there's never been one word said to one reporter ever, ever. But me, I need to show them the money.
0: Well, another trope, shifty, you know,
1: yeah. or a thief,
0: or a thief. So, Judge, you you said something early on, and I want to sort of wrap this segment up with with this part that you talked about being racist, being. Um, against racism and being anti-racist. And let, let me put this in a little context. Um, those people who feel that they are white people who are allies have said repeatedly over years, I am not racist. Uh President Trump even says, I'm the least racist person in the world. Um, That seems to not have a lot of meaning to me anymore. Just saying I'm not racist sounds empty or almost patronizing.
1: And you could probably start by not referring to African countries as asshole
0: countries. Right. <laughs>
1: Those two don't really juxtapose.
0: No, but, but talk about terms like that. Uh, we, we've talked about racist, but you know, there's the, the racist who screams the N word, but there are the subtle, uh, sort of covert and overt racisms that you've been talking about. Some more subtle than others. uh, But then there's the the benign neglect kind of racism that we talk about as being systemic or institutionalized racism. Those those sound sort of cleaner than just pure racist, although, although they're not. But then just to say I'm not racist sounds sort of hollow.
1: And because that's the racism that allows you to passively sit by and to see things happen to people of color and to be unaffected by it. And that in and of itself is a form of racism. And I think that is a mark that is often missed. Oh, I'm not racist. Oh, I'm sorry. Is is that happening to you? Oh, that's a shame. Well, better you than me. Yeah. And because it is, because the daggers are pointed away from me, it is the selfishness of racism. It is the privilege it is the lack of acknowledgement of that privilege. It is the fact that there are white people who don't realize that they are cloaked in privilege from birth. And that privilege allows them to walk on this earth, to walk up and down streets and never give a second thought to things that black people worry about daily, that black mothers and fathers lose sleep about regularly. That is in and of itself a form of racism, the lack of in to the idea that you don't have to have certain conversations with your children or you don't have to worry about being followed in a store. No one checks your bag twice against your receipt. There's certain things that you just naturally don't experience simply and only because you don't have melanin. That, again, is more than a mere declaration of I'm not racist. No, it's not about just I'm not racist. It has to be not only am I not racist, I am against it. It actually offends my core when I see it, when I express it it when I know that it's happening, it is something that hits me in a place that unsettles me, that jolts me, that makes me spring into action and do something about it. But Just because I'm white doesn't mean I sit on the sidelines when it happens. Not being racist and being anti-racist are two different things. Being anti-racist is actually a verb
0: which it denotes means action.
1: To do something. Yes.
0: Judge, as always, thank you for this conversation. I promise you, we're gonna start a, a series of these and we're gonna come back to uh, specific topics. Uh, and and share these conversations with our listeners and and maybe even open up our conversations to uh, a few others. But uh, I thank you for joining us and and prompting this conversation.
1: And I thank you so much for using the power of your platform, the wisdom of your insight, and the will and strength of your character to tackle a topic that is so desperately in need of your ability to speak truth to power. Thank you.
0: Today, we've been talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers about racism she confronts as a black woman judge in Ohio. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, or if you have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. That's at hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at Ohio dot E-D-U. That's hodson at ohio.edu.